Sunday or Resurrection Sunday uh, before, you've heard me say that this is, in a strange way, probably my least favorite Sunday of the year for preaching. Um, I used to love going to church on Easter or Resurrection Day um, because my family would get together, we would eat food afterwards, we would fellowship, we usually get up early and do the sunrise thing, and and then after I started uh, preaching 10, 12 years ago, uh, it started to get pretty nerve-wracking because you recognize that uh, a couple different things. You recognize that there's, there's this, this self-inflicted pressure to preach a message that's going to really reach people. And um, a couple years ago, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think I slept the night before. I was so nervous about it. And then um, I just realized that It really doesn't matter what I say. I mean, we all, we all know, we all recognize that Jesus existed, um, that he was uh, born of a virgin, and he, 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 he lived, and he uh, taught, and he got a following, and, and then he was uh, crucified unjustly, um, and then he, he was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. And we, we all, we all, if we didn't believe that, we probably wouldn't be sitting here unless somebody had just really talked us into coming today. Um, but as I look around, my guess is that almost everybody here acknowledges and recognizes the fact that there was a man named Jesus who uh, died on a cross for us and that he, he was raised to life and that uh, without that, and I'm going to preach on that in the sermon a little bit, without that resurrection that's talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, then our faith is, it's a moot point. It's completely useless. I mean, the teachings of Christianity, the teachings of Jesus are very applicable to our lives. Um, we can look at it from health, spiritual, emotional uh, strength that we can get from it. But um, without the resurrection of the dead, then our faith is kind of, it's futile. It's, it's pointless. It doesn't, it, it doesn't do anything for us eternally. Um, so this morning, I'm just going gonna, gonna to go through my notes, and, and I'll probably go off my notes, as some of you are used to doing, but one thing uh, for, for the couple of first-time visitors here is that, uh, one, I read too fast, Dan, and I get off topic. I just kind of say what's on my mind, and in, in 15 or 10 years, 12 years of preaching, it hasn't gotten me in a lot of trouble. It's gotten me a little, but not a lot, so... Anyways, I was kind of putting this message together and this idea of Resurrection Day, and I, 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 always, I kind of think about things. I ask the question of why a lot. I was that kid in school, the elementary kid in school that always raised her hand and said, I don't get it, um, or why. I asked my parents why a lot because I wanted to know the answer uh, to the, the question or the, or the statement. And I, I was wondering uh, who invented anniversaries? Like, what, when, did that, when did that become a thing? When did it become a thing that we celebrate something annually? Uh, and we, we've done that, and we either celebrate something annually from a positive perspective, um, or it can be sometimes a painful or a negative thing in our lives that we remember. Um, I had a, a friend whose father passed away a year and two months ago in a tragic uh, plane crash, and every year... Uh, on the one-year anniversary, they went and they visited the site. Um, and my guess is they're going to do that as an annual thing to remember 
a, a time of pain and, and just reflect on their life and reflect on the life of their, their dad and father-in-law. Uh, but we also celebrate uh, annually, you know, wedding anniversaries and birthdays and, and, and Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday. And I, and I started looking into it, and I asked the great modern um, historian, Dr. Google, you guys all know him, you've, read of, you've heard of him, and I, I Googled, you know, when was the first anniversary or who invented the anniversary? And the first response, and you're going to get five or seven or 12 different responses of the, you know, what they think or what Dr. Google believes. And so he, the first response that he came up with was that it was instituted by the Holy Roman Empire around 800 A.D. And A.D. meaning Anno Domini, not after death, but Anno Domini, which is year of our Lord, which is basically the year zero or one. And, and so around 800 A.D., 800 after the year of our Lord, the Holy Roman Empire came up with this concept of an anniversary, and it was specifically at that point for um, wedding anniversaries. And it was about the 25th wedding anniversary that they would, uh, the husband would give to his bride uh, silver, and it would adorn her with silver as a, a representation of their 25 years or quarter century of marriage. And then it went to the 50 year, which I think is the golden anniversary, and you know, went on from there. And so I was thinking about this, I said, you know, I... There's something in the Bible that seems to predate the Holy Roman Empire thing for anniversaries. And so I began to look uh, in, in the Old Testament and turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Now, most of you, if you've been to Sunday school or you've read the Bible at all, kind of understand in Exodus, you know, we've got this thing called the Passover. And the Passover is when... when when Israel was leaving Egypt, God's people were leaving Egypt because they were in slavery, and Moses had went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, and they put some blood on the doorpost, and then the angel of the Lord came, and, and anybody that had blood on the, on the posts were allowed to leave, and, and the firstborn son of that family did not die if they had the blood on the post. So in Exodus chapter 12, I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, the Lord said to Moses, remember the, the subject or the, the point that I'm trying to bring up is the concept of anniversaries. So in Exodus 12, chapter 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, he... Uh, and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost and uh, the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So, obviously, the subject matter is the Passover meal, and there are some dates that are being put in there. They're saying on this month, on this day... You're supposed to do this with it, uh, your sandals on your feet, eat it in haste, it is Lord's Passover. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 14 says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever you shall keep it as a feast. That is one example of what I would consider this anniversarial uh, uh, moment in time that we're supposed to observe that predates the Holy Roman Empire in 800 that went from 800 to 1806, so about a thousand years they lasted. But in 1491, approximately, this was written um, in Exodus. And this was commemorating the Passover meal. And so this concept, this concept of anniversaries, um, regardless of when they started or the technical side of when they started, I got to thinking, I get on these rabbit trails when I start writing and thinking, and I have a hard time staying on one path. And this rabbit trail got me to thinking, uh, I wonder what the first Easter was like. We're going to call it Resurrection Day, but just for the sake of argument or the sake of conversation, we all, every, people say Happy Easter. We're used to this tradition of saying Happy Easter. Kind of a, Dr. Google also said that the meaning of the, the naming of the celebration of Easter came uh, from a goddess in England named Eostre, who was celebrated at the beginning of spring. The only reference to this goddess comes from the, writing, uh, the writings of uh, Venerable Bede, a British monk who uh, lived in the late 7th and early 8th century. So there's this, this, this pagan belief about the beginning of Easter. It's not what my sermon's about. It's just a little side trail. But when we look at this, this Easter, I begin to think, what, what happened on the first resurrection day a year after Jesus resurrected? A year after he ascended. I, just, I was thinking, were the apostles, did they put on their, their Sunday best and they say, hey, we're going go to we're gonna go to church down at the neighbor's house because they met in house churches back then. And we're going we're gonna to dress up in our best cloaks and, and, and we're going to put in our, our kids in their best cloaks and their best clothing and we're going to go down to the neighbor's house and we're going to have church together and we're going to remember and, and talk about Jesus. Did afterwards, so they say, hey, let's go grab a bunch of duck eggs and let's go hide them because I don't think they had plastic at that point. Let's go get a bunch of duck eggs and we're going to hide them and let's, let's watch the little the kids, you know, run around the yard and pick up the duck eggs and the, and the, and the chicken eggs, and, and we're going to put them in a basket. Did they do that? And then after that, did they say, let's go back to, you know, Uncle Jimmy's house and, let's, let's, and Aunt Sarah's house, and let's have uh, a, a big old thing of potatoes. Maybe that was in Ireland, but, but let's just say a big old thing of potatoes, and we're going to have a big ham. Probably not. And then we're going to have a bunch of asparagus and we're just going to have this great big feast in remembering what Jesus did. Remembering when Jesus resurrected. And I, I was thinking about that and I said, I don't think any of those things happened in the first annual day they remembered the resurrection of Jesus. I, I just can't picture that's what they did. I was thinking maybe they sat around and they just said, hey, let's talk about the last year. And maybe... Maybe it's the moment in time when Luke said, hey, I need to start writing this stuff down. I need to make, we need to, we need to put this in pen, on paper. Let's grab some papyrus. And you guys remember 
I mean, and he, he, goes to, he goes and he starts getting some paper and he gets his pen and he starts writing down. You remember when Jesus, uh, after he resurrected from the dead and he was on the road to Emmaus and he was talking to those, those brothers of ours and then he spends 40 days with us and he begins to teach us all these things. And this is a year after it happened and so they're commemorating it, they're thinking about it, they're remembering it. He says, remember when he was talking to us and he talked about how the Holy Spirit would come on us? And then... Remember when he just levitated? And he says, I gotta write, I gotta write stuff. So he writes this down, and he gets he, he goes, acts, the actions. It's our doings. Let's write down the doings of what we've done over the last year and what we saw. And so he begins to write this down. And he said, So when we came together, we asked God, remember when we asked Jesus, Lord, will you restore Israel at this time? And remember Jesus said, and he said, don't, slow down, slow down. And he's writing this down, and he's, he's dipping his pen in the ink, and he's writing it down on the papyrus. And, and, and remember when Jesus says, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed upon my own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy... Remember when he said we receive power? And then after that, he says, remember when we were standing there, and he said, you guys aren't going to leave Jerusalem, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna stay in Jerusalem, and then you're going to go to Judea, and then Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And he's writing this down, and all of a sudden, remember when he... He just levitated, and we were standing there looking up in the sky, and we're seeing Jesus levitate and go into the cloud, and we were all mesmerized, and this angel says, what are you guys looking at? You, we, I told you what to do. So he's writing this down, and then after that he goes, man, just after that happened, remember we had to replace Judas, that traitor? And remember we were sitting there, and he, he's, he's, he's continuing to pin, he says, remember we were sitting there, and the Holy Spirit and the tongues of fire came down and we all began to speak in these, this, these languages that other people could understand even though they were from a totally different region of Jerusalem and they could understand us. Someone from Medes and Mesopotamia understand us in our native Galilean tongue. That was crazy. <laughs> and remember when they said Peter was drunk? And he's like, it's nine in the morning, I'm not drunk. Remember when... Peter was preaching the sermon. It only lasted a minute and 30 seconds, but remember he basically called out everybody there on the day of Pentecost or the day of Passover. And he says, remember, or Pentecost, sorry, do you remember that you are the ones that killed Jesus? And remember the three or 4,000 people that went down into the water that day and were baptized? Man, that was awesome. was powerful. I remember, I'm going to write this down, some would say we were addicted to the apostles' teaching. They were dedicated to the apostles' teaching. And they spent time in fellowship, and they spent time in prayer, and they spent time in breaking bread. And I can just picture that year after Jesus resurrected, and 40 days after he ascended, and then 324 days later after he ascended, them sitting around together and discussing what they had done over the last year. And I want you to imagine if you were part of that first annual celebration of the resurrection. Would it look anything like we do it today. Think about that. Think about time travel. The time traveler's wife. 
Think about being able to go back 1900 and however many years it was ago and sitting down on that, 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 that first annual celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. And if your life and your actions and your activities day to day would be any different then as they are now. It's a sobering thought. In my mind, it was a sobering thought. Over the last couple of months, uh, Steve Wood, our elder, and Justin, uh, one of our preachers, is, is, uh, and myself have gone over um, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached to his, uh, his people, his followers. And we've looked in depth from Matthew chapter 5. You know, we've, we've studied in depth the, the Beatitudes, you know, the, the poor in spirit and those who mourn and the meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those that are persecuted for martyrdom. We've looked at in depth every single beatitude, the eight beatitudes that we see in Matthew 5. And after that, we followed up this, this, uh, this idea when Jesus says, you are the salt. You are the light. It wasn't like, hey, I suggest you be the salt, and I suggest you be the light. He's, he's calling his disciples... And he's teaching them, he says, this is what it means to be happy. This is what it means to be blessed. And then he says, and this here, you, you, you people, my disciples, are the salt and you are the light of the world. And then after the salt and the light passage that we went over, um, the last two weeks, Steve has been discussing the law and the prophets and going back into, you know, what does the law say? Who are the prophets? And, and what does Jesus mean when he talks about, I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill the prophets and fulfill the law. And so the last two weeks we've gone on that. And next week we're going to continue on. I hope this isn't like uh, my brother uh, Matt made a kind of funny comment. He said, hey, I'm a true priester now when he walked in because he, he's a police officer and he's, he's out protecting us and He's being the salt and the light, because I know Matt. And uh, he says, I'm a priester now. I, you know, and I said, well, you've got a good reason to. You're, you're working and, and providing for your family on Sundays. And make, I understand. Um, but I, I hope that schedule changes for you, for, you know, for our sake and your sake and family's sake. However, there's a lot of us here that sometimes make Christmas and Easter like the day that we come to learn about God. This is like the one day or two days or five days a year that we come to learn about God. And my, my goal is to just be real with you and say, I would love it and desire if this was something that you made uh, a habit. Make it a habit-forming thing where you come and you learn about what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of Christ. In Acts 17.11, it says they were called Christians first in Antioch. And if you look in Acts 17, I'm sorry, Acts 11, I didn't say Acts 17. It's Acts 11, in Acts 11, 19 through 26, it talks about they were called Christians first in Antioch, and a Christian is a follower of Christ. And in order to be a follower of Christ, we need to continue to learn what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower, what it means to understand his teachings and what he's, what he's, what he's said in order to apply to our lives. And so next week, we're going to begin this process going through the Sermon on the Mount that talks about all of the subjects that fulfill the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5. And we're going to talk about anger, and we're going to talk about lust, and we're going to talk about divorce, and we're going to talk about 
oaths and making promises and getting even with people, getting your pound of flesh when you deserve it. Uh, we're going to be talking about loving others, including our enemies. We're going to be talking about giving to the needy, prayer, fasting, money, judging others, faith and asking God to fulfill our needs. How we treat people. How we treat people. Uh, knowing his people by their actions, God's judgment and encouragement to stay faithful. That summarizes, that's every subject in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount I just mentioned. And what's interesting to me is that when you look at Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 and you go through all of these subjects, every single one in this room is somehow affected by one of these subjects. It may not be you personally that struggle with any of these things, but it may be your child, it may be your spouse, it may be your best friend, it may be the person sitting next to you. But everybody in this congregation this morning, sitting in a pew, is somehow affected by anger, lust, divorce, making promises, getting even with people, loving others, giving to the near, prayer, fasting, money, anxiety, judging others, faith in asking God to fulfill our needs, how we treat people, knowing His people by their fruits, by their actions, God's judgment and encouragement to stay faithful. So we're going to be going through those in detail from Matthew 5 all the way through Matthew 7, and it's going to start with anger next week. So this whole long introduction brings me to the question of what I think is important about the body of the Sermon on the Mount and the teaching that Jesus did prior to his death, burial, his resurrection, and in his ascension. And the, the, the statement or the question or the thought is, why? I don't get it, teach. Explain it to me. Why is the body of his sermon so important and applicable to you, Vern? Why is it applicable to you? Why is it applicable to me? Why is it applicable to my kids, to the elder, to the, to the deacon, the deaconess, to the worship leader, to everybody sitting in a pew this morning, across the country sitting in a pew? Why is the body of teaching that we see in the Sermon on the Mount important? And I have to ask that question because when Jesus starts teaching the Sermon on the Mount, he says, uh, you have heard that it was said, blank, 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 or dot, 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 but I say, and then he goes to say, it was also said uh, this, but I say, there's this teaching that we see in the Scriptures that's applicable to every single one of us. And I fear that sometimes we get really numb We get really numb to the words in here. Because there's a saying, if you tell a lie over and over and over and over, people will begin to believe it. You're stupid. You're stupid. You're stupid. Pretty soon, they go, am I stupid? You're no good. You're unworthy. Am I? Maybe I am. 
Guys, the teaching that we see throughout the entire Bible is for us. And so the question, why does Jesus, while here on earth, teach these particular subjects that directly involve every human being on the planet who is capable of self-assessment, self-thought, self-reflection, and free will? Why does he teach these things? And the reason I believe he teaches them is because he loves us. That's the bottom line. It's because he loves us. There's a passage in Deuteronomy that I read years ago, and I, it, it, it hit me to the point where I underlined it in my Bible because I thought I never want to lose the place of that Scripture, so can I always go back to it? Why? Why does it say love your enemies? Why does it say don't say raka to your brother? Why does it say don't even look lustfully at a woman? Why does it say thou shalt not lie? Why does it say this? Why does Jesus say that? And in Deuteronomy chapter 12, Moses is given the task of of doing two new stones because he went up to the mountain and he comes back down and there's this golden calf that gets fabricated by Aaron and and the rest of Israel because they were waiting for Moses and they're like, I don't know where he's at. We need to, let's grab all the gold, melt it, make a golden calf and let's worship the golden calf. And so Moses is up there, he comes down, because God's angry, he comes down, and he sees the golden calf, so he throws the tablets down, the tablets break, he goes back up to the mountain, he makes the tablets again. I'm not going to read the whole Deuteronomy 10, 1 through 11, but I will read this. After the tablets are rewritten, re-engraved, re-engraved after 40 days, 40 nights, in verse 12 he says, and now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you? After they had worshipped the golden calf, he says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I have commanded you today. When you read it and you stop there, you go, Wow, that seems pretty self-serving of God, doesn't it? It's like, it's bow to me, worship me, love me, walk in my ways, fear me, keep my commandments, keep my statutes, if you stop there. But why does Moses give these rules? Why does God give these rules to Moses to give to the people? At the end of this verse, in verse 13, when he says, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today, for your good. We are a people from the beginning of time that grab a hammer, we hit our thumb with the hammer, and we go, that hurts, and then we grab the hammer and we do it again. That is human nature. Raise your hand if you've ever done that. Not literally the hammer, but you know what I mean. If you don't know the hammer, that's, we need to talk about that. That might be self-mutilation, but... If you're just banging yourself over and over and over with a hammer on the thumb, you're doing it, and God's going, I'm giving you these laws, I'm giving you these rules for your own good because I love you. We've got to understand that about God. We've got to get past the, the religious, and I, I love the word religion, I think religion's a good word, but religion has been bastardized a little bit in its own term because people think, well, religion's bad, I'm spiritual. What spirit are you following? Like the religion that God sees as pure and faultless is taking care of widows and orphans and 
to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The world is saying one thing, God is saying another, God puts everything we need to know right here, and if we follow it, we follow it, we are blessed. We are in a good standing with God, and life is better. So he says, for your own good, I'm giving you these rules and laws. And you're like, well, I'm not a Jewish person. I'm not from the tribe of Benjamin, or the tribe of Joseph, or the tribe of Levi. So so what about me? What does this have to do with a New Testament Christian that says, I'm going to stick to the, the letters in red? Let's go to the letters in red. Go to the book of John, chapter 10. I read a really awesome uh, commentary on this uh, about Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. And he starts in verse 1. And Jesus says in John 10, verse 1, I am, I'm sorry, that's the head title. The title of it is, I am the good shepherd. He says in John 10, verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So here we have a bunch of uh, sheep herders in Palestine, and we've got these sheep, and they've got, they've got these pens, and they've got these gates, and sometimes there was common pens, and they all shared them, and the sheep would know if the farm, because a lot of times, like in certain areas, they would raise the sheep for meat, and in other areas, they'd raise them for their wool. And so it's, it's said by some that they were raising them for wool, and so they start to get names to the sheep. They recognize the sheep. They know the sheep. They can, they can see them, and they go, well, that's Blackfoot, and that's brown nose, and that's white tail, and so they've got the names of these sheep, and they knew them very uh, personally, and, and they could know if one was heard or not, but they still didn't get it. So Jesus says, he goes on and he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me that is in Jesus, he will be saved and will go out, or go in and out and find pasture. So if you can imagine, they're coming through Jesus. Jesus is the door. He is the gate. They're coming through Jesus, going out into the pasture to feed. And then he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I want to do a whole sermon on this right now, but I'm not going to. But I am going to segue for a second, because we have some young people in this room. Do you realize that every day you're being lied to? Every single day you are being lied to, right to your face. You are being taught things that are not true. You're being told things that are false. You're being taught that your value is based on your outward appearance. You're being taught that you may not have been created by God the way you should be. You are being lied to. 
That is what's happening in our world. There is a spiritual battle fighting to destroy your soul. Well, that's dark, Nate. That's dark, preacher. Why would you say this on Easter? Because it's true. It's true. The evil one is attempting to destroy you. I did not hit a level of confidence that I reached my a higher potential until I recognized who I was creating the image of, personally. I did not recognize how successful I could be, how happy I could be, how confident I could be, not arrogant, confident I could be, until I recognized that I was created in the image of God. I didn't know how to truly love my wife until I recognized that she was also created in the image of God. Male and fail, male and female, he created them. This destruction of your minds is intentional, and that's why when Jesus says the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's his job for you. But Jesus goes on to say, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down on my own accord. There's a verse that I skipped right after the thief. And we'll go back to verse 10. It says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We keep hitting our thumb with a hammer. Jesus says, I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Who may have life? The sheep, us, and have it abundantly. Well, that's great. Abundant life, that's awesome. What is abundant? <laughs> what is an abundant life? Like, it sounds good because it's coming from Jesus. Like, I, I want an abundant life. So, I looked up the word abundantly, and it says, the Greek word is perisos, which means superabundant, excessive, superior advantage, beyond measure. That's what it says, that they may have life abundantly, beyond measure. And so I'm assuming, because I'm an American, that if I'm born in the right family, and I'm born wealthy, and I'm a Rockefeller, or I'm a Walton, or I'm a Bezos, that I've been born in an abundant situation. The thing is, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying you have an abundant life. An abundant life. And life does not consist 
of our belongings. Life does not consist of material wealth or our stock portfolio or our real estate portfolio or our bank account. That's not what it consists of. And so when I look at this, I say, okay, what is an abundant life according to the Bible? If I were to just look at the Bible and I'm going to see what is preached on the most, if I'm going to see what is taught on the most, if I'm going to look at what is being taught throughout the epistles, throughout the letters, throughout Jesus' teaching when he says, I've got neither house, I don't have anywhere to stay, I don't have anywhere to lay my head, it's obviously not talking about things. But when I see what are the benefits, why is God doing this for me? What is for my own good? And I have to go to the passage in Galatians when it talks about the abundant life. The abundant life, according to the Bible, if I were to summarize some things, would be love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Peg's like one step ahead of me in her head right now. She's, she's saying it in her head, the, the, the fruits of the Spirit. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the abundance of life as I see it in Scripture. Who doesn't want to experience true love? I don't, I, I may have said this from the pulpit before. You've seen the, the, uh, the documentary called Happy? Raise your hand if you've watched Happy, a documentary. Grant has. Yeah, Happy. It's a phenomenal uh, one and a half hour show about a rickshaw driver that makes a buck a day in like India and then a stockbroker in New York City that makes a million bucks a year. And they did studies on them. And they looked at the happiness, if they were able to you know, quantify it somehow through his health, through his, his actions, through his family. And the stockbroker was miserable. He was on all sorts of medication, trying to calm himself down. He had high anxiety, he had depression. He was miserable. The rickshaw driver goes out, leaves at 5 in the morning, makes a buck or two a day, comes home to a bunch of kids that love him and he's happy and they're eating on the floor and they are just thrilled to be together. So, happiness, love, love is patient, love is kind. We see it in 1 Corinthians 13. This is what I believe he's saying. I'm going to give you an abundant life. I'm going to give you love. I'm going to, I'm going to give you joy. True joy inside here where we feel joy about waking up in the morning and living. Oh, I'm so glad to be alive. How about that's inner peace that we can experience? The peace that transcends all understanding. Does it come from the things the world offers? Or does it come from what Jesus offers? Patience. Lord knows we all need that. Guys, we can go through this list and believe me, I know people are hurting in this room right now. Not a doubt in my mind because of circumstances. And the only equation that I can come up with 
that makes any sense to me at all is Jesus. And it sounds like such a cliche that we've heard for the last, since the Jesus movement in the 60s or 70s. Give your life to Jesus. Gee, what would Jesus do? But the more I study this and the more I do my best to apply it to my life, I recognize this is legit. This is real. Like, this isn't just something that, like, well, I'm going to, you know, I'll let them do that and I'll do my, you know, once in a while thing. But this is real stuff. And I'm just speaking from personal example and people that I've watched their lives and I see the fruits and I go, what, what's your secret? And they're like, I got Jesus. Oh, okay. No, really, what's your I got Jesus. I recognize I've bent my knee, I've bowed my knee, I've sat before the throne and I said, Jesus, I'm yours. And now I get to enjoy the blessings that come from being his. Over the next several months, we're going to be continuing to look at these teachings and how they, um, they preceded his resurrection and his ascension. And they're clearly, as I study them, uh, as we study them, as those of us that will be preaching on them, um, they're, they're clearly the path uh, to a different life than what's common in our culture. It's, they're they're anti-culture. But there's a reason why we're called aliens and strangers in this world. Like we don't belong to this world. And so when I, when I look at these and I go, oh, I, uh, let's see, uh, retaliation. Hmm. I got to tell a baseball story. I'm sorry. I just, I can't. Four years ago, we were playing against Fort Morgan in playoffs. And this, this umpire, help me Lord, this umpire kind of cheated us out of an opportunity to hit uh, to get a base hit to go into state for the first time in 31 years. Ball was six inches outside, clearly a ball, 3-1, best hitter coming up. Strike two, next, next ground ball, hits it up, you know, ground ball, game's over. So last year, uh, two years later, he's doing the same thing to us in a league game, and I'm losing my cool on him. And then last year, the strike zone in, from Little League all the way up to the big leagues is 17 inches wide. That's how big a home plate is, 17 inches. That's home plate, 17 inches. So this catcher sits on the outside corner of 17 inches and then goes like this. And he's calling every ball six inches outside a strike for their team. Our pitcher throws it right down the middle, and we've got a good catcher. And the catcher frames it, boom, catches it, ball. I missed that one. Next pitch. Boom. Ball. Looks at me. I go, Brett, where was that? Right down the middle. So I say something to the umpire. I kept it Christian. It's close, but I kept it Christian. It was righteous indignation. So I'm putting this sermon together, and we're, it, we're, we're more than halfway through our season, and I just know we're going to have this umpire in either regionals, and if we make it to state, he's going to be there. And I was in my mind rehearsing what I was going to say to get thrown out of the game if he squeezes us again. So when I, 
You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist anyone who is evil. Well, I'm sorry, but this umpire in this situation, in my mind, is a little evil. Now, no offense, Jared. Sometimes they get evil to a coach. And it says that I should turn the other cheek. And so I have to think about how do I apply this to my life to be a leader among young men. That's what God's calling me to do. How do I do it in a way that I can still glorify the king and still st stand up for my guys? So when I look at, sorry the baseball story, but it's fresh on my mind. It's like the, one of the two favorite things I do. This is one of them, and, and coaching baseball is the other. Um, when I, I got to get back on track now, sorry. See, I told you it was just a matter of time before I hit a trail. Um, right here, we likely all believe that the resurrection of Jesus is not a hoax nor a fable, but rather a period in time that is celebrated annually as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday or Easter. My hope, my hope and prayer is for those that have surrendered to that fact, that have surrendered to the fact that the resurrection, the ascension is real. That those that have surrendered to the fact continue on their journey of sanctification. That they continue on that journey of being more Christ-like that they continue on their journey of seeing what the Sermon on the Mount says and how it applies to their life and how they can give God the glory through their actions. And for those who have yet to surrender, and there are some of you in here, I'm assuming, there are some that are in every church building in the world, for those of you who have yet to surrender their life, the invitation from him awaits your acceptance. And in return, a full, abundant life is the offer that he has put on the table. I don't know how to put it any other way, guys. For your own good. This world's not getting more godly. Those of you that follow any kind of news or just read the news, watch TV, watch, read the papers, it's just getting, it's getting more rowdy, it's getting more immoral. <laughs> Immorality is being celebrated by our leaders politically and our, and our uh, popular culture is putting it on a pedestal as something to be revered and be worshipped. And I'm not a fear-mongering preacher, but I hope we can look at uh, we can look at the reality and the facts and decide which which side of the fence we want to be on. It seems like a simple decision. I w it wasn't simple when I hadn't made it, but after I made it, it's, it was a simple decision. So I love you guys. You know that. Uh, sincerely, love every one of you in here, um, and I hope you guys have an awesome Sunday with the family, and be thinking about, maybe what, what was it like 1990 years ago, or whatever the math works out to be, that first, you know, that first resurrection, annual resurrection Sunday, so uh, I think communion, you'll pray over communion, and, and um, have a good, uh, good Sunday.